0: Data Skeptic bonus feed, where we release extended content on data science, statistics, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. Well, I'm here once again with Tobias Turnstrom. Thanks for joining me, Tobias. Thank you, Gunn. It's good to have you back. So I wanted to have a follow-up discussion with some of the uh, things we got into on the last time we spoke, and really specifically talk about model deployment. So we previously talked about that it's now something you can do inside of SQL Server. It'll run R code and Python natively. But I'd like to get into a real nitty-gritty discussion of what that means, how you do it, why you do it, that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so maybe to kick off, can you talk about the options people have? What languages can they do? And are there you know, any limits on the types of models they can use, that sort of thing?
1: Good question. So, well, we we basically just run the R runtime and the Python runtimes next to the database and integrate. So it's basically up to the runtime, right? Whatever you can do inside of R or in Python, you can do on on SQL Server. Or I'd say the combination of the runtime and operating system. So currently our machine learning services are only on SQL Server on Windows uh, and we're in the progress of bringing it to Linux as well. So we we just announced SQL on Linux as well. Um, So so that's up and coming. So as long as the packages that you need are available on on Windows, there is no problem.
0: Makes sense. And... How would I make sure, if I was using something a little bit obscure, What? how do I install it or how do I make sure it gets to the database?
1: Yeah, no, that's a, it's a very good question. That's actually something we spent a bunch of time on for SQL Server 2017, is supporting storing the packages inside the database. So in 2016, you had to just basically install, run whatever installer on the same machine as the SQL Server instance. And then the packages are available there, right? But uh, starting with 2017, we also support storing them inside the database, which is important for disaster recovery, high availability, and so on. If the database fails over to another node, you then have to make sure that the packages that you use are available there as well.
0: And is that something, obviously an organization can do things different ways, but do you see that as something a data scientist who creates a model does, or does a DBA need to supervise it? who does the actual installation and how do they do it?
1: Yeah, that's probably diverging opinions, right? (laughs) This is very, I think, up to, many organizations do it, I would say, differently. It depends on the scenario a lot, right? So if you have, you know, a system that's run mainly for data science, you probably don't want to be in the way of the data scientist and just enable them to deploy and so on on their own. Uh, That was a big, like a key for us because we added, obviously, permission models around this so you can grant permissions to deploy packages and so on. Um, Now, from you know, if you're installing it on like a banking system right, or a you know, transactional system with high degrees of security and expectations, then presumably there is a whole certification process to go through. Like, Which code can I deploy? Is the package trusted? And so on.
0: Makes sense. Let's say I'm working in Python and presumably I'm going to use the sklearn library. So I go through all my work. I come up with my nice model. It's got the fit and predict methods that I need. Where do I go next i 'm used to pickling that object, but how do I prepare it and get it where it needs to be
1: well, so the you have to serialize the model and store it basically like we 're in a relational database, so what we have there are tables, <laughs> so you store the model as a serialized object in the table and it 's the same for both R and Python, and the database doesn 't really know that it's a model mm-hmm. right so you know your your typical training thing you would i think this is an important thing that we went through now i 'm Myself, I'm not like Python or R guy. Myself, like Python, I can you know understand uh, half reasonably. R really, really not. That the much much better people than I that can that can figure this R language somehow is is not. Tobias isn't built for that. Mm-hmm. But basically, you the, the interesting thing is you just copy your R script or your Python script into the server, uh, into a store procedure or wherever you want to run it. And when you do training. Somehow you get access to the data. So in R, for example, you can pass a query in that ends up in a data frame. Some packages allow you to read directly, like our, uh, these Revo scale R, and the Py packages that we have can read directly from the database. So you get access to the data. You, you know, run whatever algorithms you want to run on the data. And at the end, of you have a model. And then you call some method to serialize it. And then you can basically pass that serialized byte array back to the database and store it. And the nice thing in a table, it's very easy to do versioning, right? Mm -hmm. So if you train your model daily, hourly, weekly, whatever you do, as a scheduled thing or maybe on request. At the end of it, you probably just insert it into the table. You take a timestamp because this makes it very easy when you use it for scoring, you would just select from that table to grab the model and pass it to either an R or Python script or we have this new predict function that we added to SQL Server to 2017. So you'd pass it there and then you would use that model for scoring. And this makes it very easy now to version the models and say, hey, I didn't really like where this model went, so let me go and use the previous version or the version before that. And you can obviously now... Track and test the model side by yeah. side easily, right? Which is an interesting concept.
0: Yeah, I like that a lot. I, if it were me, obviously you could implement it a couple ways. I'd have, just as you describe a model's table, I'd have the timestamps when it got created, yeah. maybe some parameters for it's assigned to this customer, or that customer, A, B testing. Yeah. And then I've got full traceability. Any transaction, I can go back and say, give me the ID of the model you use. Exactly. That's very cool.
1: It gets very interesting. Overall, like data lineage and model lineage and so on is a. Uh, it's a very important thing once you get a little bit further into you know, production scenarios because at some point you're looking at a record that's years old and you're like, hmm, I wonder which model actually created this score, right? Yeah. And where is that model today? And where is that model now, <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
0: So then the serialized model, I have the liberty to do whatever I want because, like you said, just put in the database. You don't care how I serialize it. Do I then put that in like a, a blob field? Actually, is there a blob? I'm not, I can't recall. If blob yeah, so
1: obviously all databases call them different things. Yeah. So, But yeah, it's a, we have a data type called var binary max in SQL Server.
0: And then is there any limit size-wise?
1: So uh, the, the default is two gigabytes, uh, which should be, Probably fit all yeah, yeah. all models. You can use the file stream attribute also, and then we don't have limits. It's up to the file system. Ah,
0: yeah. If you're building a model bigger than two gigabyte, maybe for deep learning or something. But other than that, you probably made a mistake. Somewhere. Yeah,
1: there's something yeah problematic. Yeah,
0: and then is the primary integration point through a stored procedure?
1: I would say so. That's it. Depends. Like this is also. You know, the world is split, you know, roughly half and half, kind of like R and Python mm-hmm. with you know people who like to use stored procedures and who don't. It, it doesn't really matter from a database perspective. So it might be nice that you have in your application, you actually have the actual R script and it's source controlled there. And you just call our SP execute external script and you pass the R script in. But you can might as well use a stored procedure as well. It It, it really depends on your application pattern. And you should go with what kind of aligns with what else you're doing.
0: Yeah. And I know a lot of people who are good at machine learning aren't necessarily, they usually know SQL, but they might not be fluent with things like cross apply and stuff like that, even stored procedures. For those listeners, could you give a quick rundown of what a stored procedure is and how you write one?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So stored procedures are very simple things. It's basically just, you think of it as a module or function that contains a bunch of SQL code. And the SQL code you can have in there is not just the SQL language, but you can call other stored procedures so you can nest them, and including then calling our stored procedure to enable R or to run R and Python scripts. But that's really it. You create a stored procedure, then it becomes metadata in the database, just like a table, and then you can call it. So one of the things that obviously becomes practical, one of the things is you send less data over the network since you don't have to send the whole R script or Python script every time. Mm-hmm. And you know what's deployed in the database, right? So obviously, if you run different versions of your app against the same database, one may train using one R script and another version may use another R script. But yeah, that's basically just a collection of SQL statements that have a name that's a stored procedure.
0: Mm-hmm. What's a, is there another way? If you said there's some debate about whether stored procedure was the right way to call the model, how else might someone do
1: it? Otherwise, you call this sp-execute-external-script directly. Ah, got it. Makes sense.
0: And then what's the typical, or maybe there's best practices or or just the way people kind of pick as a standard, do you select from the customer's table and use the cross-apply function in, in SQL Server where I can basically pass one of the columns from the customer's table in as a function and when I get back ends up being like joined to this sort of virtual table that has the results? Or is there some other way people tend to do it?
1: Uh, yeah, so, so this, you do this with the predict function we have. Mm-hmm. SQL is one of these languages that, I guess, like most programming languages, that kind of lures you in. But, but SQL is especially tricky because it sounds so simple, like select, insert, update, delete. Like How hard yeah. could that be, right? Well, it turns out it can get fairly complex. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a join, you basically take two sets, and you say, please match these sets on this predicate or this set of predicates. Um, like join customers with orders on order ID. Right. But apply is being able to query from a set and say, hey, for every row in this set, pass a certain number of, you know, fields into a function, and that function can then return rows that gets added to the output set, basically. Mm-hmm. And cross apply is like an inner join. So if that function returns zero rows the outer row doesn't get added or outer apply it, it adds even if the if the function returns nothing so that, yeah this predict function that we added you would use with uh, typically with apply and that's an interesting addition that we have so in you know SQL server 2016 when we added our support we have to launch the R runtime every time you call uh, the SP Execute External Script, which has an overhead, I think we talked about it last time, of you know, a couple of hundred milliseconds, which is perfectly fine if you're doing batch processing. You're, like You're processing a number of rows, then fairly quickly the overhead kind of disappears. But if you want to do row by row, for example, just get the score for one particular customer if you're doing fraud detection or transaction or whatever it is, then that gets the overhead gets fairly high, right? And that's where we added this predict function, which is basically just native C++ code that's part of the SQL engine that runs the model directly inside the engine. And then you have the low kind of single to double digit millisecond response time instead.
0: Oh, very nice. Tell me a little bit about how and if I can tie the model into a transaction, or if that's relevant. Are people interested in doing these uh, scores transactionally?
1: Yeah, this is also with... turns out transactions are fairly key to most applications, especially when they become more mature. So anything you do in in SQL Server is transactional as as long as it involves a table, right? So storing the the model is for sure transactional. uh, And also any transactions that you do where you take us, you generate the score, the data that you use to generate the score will be part of this transaction. And obviously, whatever you insert the score into something will be part of a transaction. If So, for example, you can do, this is a good question. A good question, Kyle. So, it, actually, the, if you think about it, when you create, when you run a store procedure, right, or when you run the SPK, execute external script, that select statement that runs in there will run at, let's say, 1 p.m. And, after that, you may insert you know, the score into some table. Well, that happens at maybe a couple of seconds or milliseconds, or whatever, after one. Now, the question is, do you want this to be completely transactionally consistent across these, right? And is that important, right? And you can definitely do that just by adding begin transaction. And we have bunch of different isolation models in this relational database world. So in SQL Server, we have something called snapshot isolation, which guarantees that any reads and writes that you do within the transaction are in their own kind of virtual reality. So everything that happens uh, starts at 1 p.m. in this case, and everything will be guaranteed to be from that exact time point.
0: Makes sense. There's lots of ways I could deploy a model once I'm happy with it. You know, we could probably list 10 off the top of our heads from standing up a microservice or using like PMML or these sorts of things. What are the advantages of putting my model directly in the SQL server?
1: It, so really the only advantage um, using the term only uh, loosely here is if your data is there, right? If you want to, you know, do your scoring next to data that's in the database, then it's fast and secure because you don't have to move the data out from security perspective and from performance perspective if your data is not in the database it doesn't really make sense right so for example where would my data be if it wasn't in the database well it might have been just born right so let's ah, say sure, yeah. let's say your data is born on some computer somewhere or edge device or something and you want to calculate a score on that device then obviously you wouldn't want to send it to the database just to score to get the score back then you want to calculate it Makes you know, as close as possible so it all co- comes with this you know moving compute to data, Mm -hmm. right? So wherever your data happens to sit, that's where you want to run the compute. And that's where we wanted to support our Python inside the database, because you shouldn't need to move the data out just to run this processing.
0: That makes a lot of sense, yeah. So with respect to doing the compute on the database, I once worked with the DBA who was very particular about how the database ran, as I suppose you should be. And didn't like some of our stored procedures at the time which were just SQL, you know, kind of plain vanilla stored procedures because they'd eat up CPU. And he had all his, you know, pager would go off, I guess, when our jobs would kick in overnight. Do you has there been an evolution of thought on that, or is that a concern people have that we could inadvertently slow down a transactional system? You know, we definitely don't want to put any friction between a user getting an order in the system or not.
1: Yeah, no, it's a it's a good it's a good question, a good concern. So it turns out it's fairly easy to scale out a database in terms of adding read replicas. So most database systems support this, and, and so do we, you know SQL Server. So d- depending a little bit on like what data latency are you okay with, meaning how fresh, when you go and ask for a score, how fresh does that score need to be, right? If it needs to be absolutely fresh, which is a fairly... Like people always start out with this requirement, everything has to be real time. And then you get into like, what is actually real time and this whole philosophical debate. But once you get into the cost aspect, like, sure, I can make everything real time. It just will cost this much and we'll need all of these machines and so on. Then people get more pragmatic and you get into, you know, certain things have to happen immediately, those you want to run in the operational system. And this is why we focused a lot on, you know, resource management, security, and these things, so that you can run this in your operational order or transactional system. For things that, you know, is okay for it to be somewhat later, you're talking maybe seconds or minutes, you can easily create a read replica, and then you just run your R script or Python scripts there. And then it's still managed by the database, it's still in the same thing, but it lags, you know, milliseconds to seconds behind and then it's not eating up from uh, from the cpu on the production system.
0: Yeah, that's a nice setup. So tell me a little bit more about some of the security advantages. That's kind of a, a unique feature of this style
1: of doing model deployment. Yeah, I think it's it's just basically just about how as soon as your data leaves wherever it's stored, it becomes more vulnerable. Right. And you have to then think about well, okay, it goes from this system into that system. How does it get to the other system? And how much can you trust the other system? And how locked down is the other system? And it turns out like locking down systems is a fairly complex process. So the more you can keep it in one place, it's just it's really just that. Like the more the easier it is to protect the data. And then I think in SQL we've done a good job of making sure that you know we allow you to be very kind of granular in you know, what exactly do people have access to. In terms of both data and can they run our script and which models can they or which packages can they run as well as the granularity of which data can they see right we have role level permissions data masking we have support for encrypting data so it's never actually unencrypted on the server there's all of these things but basically as soon as you move data you you expose yourself and you have to at least think about uh, like how will i protect it
0: yeah has that made the uh, approach more appealing to certain industries? I'm thinking like banking might be really sensitive and it, you know there could be some restriction where I, previously they couldn't have used machine learning because they didn't want something coming out of the system. Is there anyone who's in particular any in industry
1: that's taken a hold of the style of deployment? I, to be honest, I don't personally I don't think so I haven't seen I haven't seen it because it tends to be that you know, if people want to do machine learning or AI, they, they want to do that, right? And they will go and try to figure out how to do it. I think this just makes it easier.
0: That makes a lot of sense, yeah. So you'd mentioned that with the new way the runtime's working, the latency's been reduced by like an order of magnitude. Presumably that makes it more advantageous to do some real-time stuff in addition to batch. Yep. Have you seen any interesting real-time, you know, Things happening? Anyone rolling anything interesting out?
1: Yeah, that there is a lot of interest in. I think the main interest comes from this performance and simplicity. I think security is many people realize after like, oh, this is actually really, really, actually, this might be more important. But it often starts out, I think, with simplicity. I don't have to move things around, which is easier. And performance. All of a sudden, if I I can get something back in, you know, 8 to 13 milliseconds, that's a huge difference from one second, for example, yeah. or half a second, or even more if you have to take it to some other place and calculate. So just looking at a web page, right? Take a, take a web app. You typically want it to load in somewhere around seven, like five to 700 milliseconds. Uh, and it probably does a bunch of calls to all sorts of things, including the database, right? So if you then want to make that work, it gets very, very tricky to get a good experience. And all of a sudden... You, you basically take a whole lot of load off, right, that you don't have to worry about. Yeah, so my web app could make one
0: easy call to the database that includes some boring information retrieval, but then, you know, call a couple models, bring those back. Is there a use case for maybe setting up a trigger, like whenever a table has a record inserted, run, score it, and then update?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And what do you see more of? Are, are, is there a use case that's preferred? I, I think triggers are generally not used all that much anymore yeah i've never used a trigger <laughs> yeah it's it, a lot of uh, a lot of systems use a lot of triggers i think it's the general consensus is that it i think people developers generally think it's uh, gets harder to manage triggers because they happen in the background like i remember when i was doing performance tuning back in like my pre microsoft days and I was with a customer and they had problems with you know, insert performance in their order system. And it it could take, like, they had something like order of hours of wait time across their employees in a day for just inserting orders. So we start looking at it, and we notice that, like, every time you insert an order, the database basically scans, like, X gigabytes of data for every insert. And like, hmm, what's going on? And you open up, there's a trigger on the table, and every time you insert an order, it recalculates a bunch of things, Mm -hmm. right? So I think that, that... has a lot of people kind of worried because it, it you don't see it you know just by looking at the code right it's something that happens in the background, but it's like with all things as long as you have a design and and you actually thought about it. Can be works absolutely well. So and you can absolutely run R scripts, Python scripts, and this new predict function from a trigger.
0: Yeah, for what I've kind of written off triggers for reasons like that, but for some reason I love lambda functions. So I guess I'm a hypocrite because sort of the same thing.
1: Yeah, we, we all and I think I fall into this trap also. Like you have you jump up on a very high horse at times, right. like, oh, I would never ever absolutely not do this. But then all of a sudden in some other context, you're doing exactly that. Mm-hmm. And it, it it gets interesting. When when you try to actually write down your principles and like, what, what are we actually principled about? And uh, yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> that also becomes this philosophical thing, but it, it's, it's an interesting thing, yeah.
0: So let's say I've got a query that involves doing some predictions, maybe one, maybe several, and the query ends up being slow. I need to go in and trace that, could be an index is missing, could be the model is slow. What tools do I have to do some traceability there?
1: Yeah, we, we have a, that's one of the, I think, things that we are famous for with SQL service. We have very, very good support for tracing. So one thing that we have is, is something called extended events or X events, where you can basically subscribe to events that's going on in the database, including things like R and Python script. So you can see uh, where we're spending the time. We also have on a query, if you're using the predict function, we have an execution plan. So you can see where the query optimizer thinks we're spending time. Mm-hmm. And then also dynamic management views that you can query to see where we're spending time. And typically you look at things like wait stats, like what what are we waiting for? Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's there's lots of tools. And this is one of the things that we're, we've been spending a lot of time on in the cloud where we've added support for SQL services a number of years as a service where we automatically do performance tuning for you.
0: And what happens if my R or Python code throws an exception?
1: Well then we just throw an exception out into SQL as well. So you'll you'll and you can catch that in your stored procedure and do something about it.
0: And let's for the moment assume we've got some sort of rogue programmer got has an infinite loop in there somewhere. What ends up happening?
1: Well we just we run, right? And you can kill it. But and you can set timeouts on SQL script. So typically a query timeout will go off. So by default the server doesn't have a timeout, but by another default Typically, the client that connects has a timeout. So whenever that timeout hits, we'll kill off the process and clean up.
0: Makes sense. So I know a lot of listeners will be machine learning practitioners, maybe want to give this a shot. Perhaps they're already using SQL Server, maybe not. Maybe it's a new project they want to get going. Can you tell me a little bit about what they need to install? Can they be on the... I don't know what you call it, but sort of like the trial developer version. What do they need to get
1: going? They well, so for now they need to be on Windows, right? Since SQL Server Linux doesn't support R and Python just yet, even though it's coming. Otherwise, we we have a, a principle that we've uh, we started with SQL Server 2016, which is all programmability things have to be available in all of our editions. Mm-hmm. So you can run uh, RM python in Express Edition as well, which is the completely free in-production or development everywhere version of SQL Server. SQL Server Developer Edition is also completely free, and it's it's really Enterprise Edition has, uh, has all the features, but you can only use it in non-production environments, so like on your laptop doing dev and right, test yeah. and so on. So they can use that, and then... Obviously, in, in production, they can use Web Edition, Standard Edition, and Enterprise Edition. But it's available across the board.
0: What about if I get an Azure Managed in- Instance?
1: Yeah, so Azure Managed Instance is a, is a, is a very interesting project that we're uh, you know working on right now, and it's currently in preview, which makes it a lot easier to migrate your existing SQL servers into the cloud and get, kind of like the name implies, a completely managed instance. You don't have to think about patching, backups, high availability, all of those things, Uh, performance tuning and so on. And yeah, it's fully supported in managed instance as well. And we just actually announced that we've now enabled our machine learning R support in Azure SQL database as well. It's started rolling out, and Python will be coming shortly after also. Very cool. So I imagine for certain use cases...
0: This can be the ideal implementation, you know, if, if your data is already in the database, and you can, you know, you don't mind that the compute is there, and you want to just query a model, get some sort of score. It seems like you could kind of beat any other process because there's no network. Latency. Are there any do you have any bragging rights or stats along those lines?
1: Yeah, we we do. I, I I do try not to brag too much, but but it's it's it turns out it's uh, we've done something that's pretty good. I think we're the first one that ever did. We have a, a demo where we did one million scores a second. So taking a model predicting 1 million a second on a single machine. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's anyone be it any other you know proprietary vendors or open source vendors that can get close to these kind of numbers. And especially when you think about that we're adding the whole protection along with uh, with this making sure that you know if the, our runtime crashes. Nothing happens to your operational data, mm-hmm. and that we resource govern all of these things. So, the, and I think we'll add some more interesting numbers now with our the, the real time scoring. But SQL Server, you can do some you know i think we have on on non enormous uh, machines like four socket uh, two socket machines with our in memory technology we can insert something like 10 million rows a second on a single machine fully acid compliant fully transactional and if you if you turn off if you don't need it to be durable so which is good for staging and so on we can do something like 50 million rows inserted a second very
0: nice and what about in the real time scenario a high throughput system something that gets a thousand requests a second mm-hmm. is there any concern about contention or anything along those lines
1: no it's it's just a resource question now if you if you can use the predict function that would be best because then you don't have to launch the r runtime which obviously e which obviously eats more resources mm-hmm. otherwise if you have to launch the r or python runtimes it's a good idea to see if you can batch it together somehow so throughput is generally not a problem at all like that's the 1 million a second But it's a throughput statement, not a latency statement. Right.
0: Tobias, this has been great. Thanks again for joining me and sharing some of your thoughts on the subject.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me, Carl. Yeah, good seeing you again.